We just stepped on their face with a hobnailed boot and broke their nose. One, two, three. Bullshit. Welcome to Tide Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, joined here by my good friend, Dr. Greg Rich. Greg, tell people what's up. What's up, everyone? This is our fourth take. We are probably going to fire Billy the intern up today because he has done a terrible job getting the mic set up going. <laughs> but uh, we're trying to record a podcast here on something that you won't hear in your average podcast, and that is our own unique all-league teams. Again, if you're new to the show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our email is titlerunsports at gmail.com, and we are available on iTunes and Spotify and every major podcasting platform. Apologize in advance for any echoey sounds you may hear. We're trying to set up here, so if the sound quality isn't as good as normal, again, blame Billy the intern. So Greg is a professor of sports management at Georgia Southern. He has a background working in the private sector, including an NBA team, the Boston Celtics. So Greg is one of the better basketball minds that I know, and I really respect his opinion, which is why we're bringing him on today to discuss these all-league awards. Having said that, he is an unabashed Boston Celtics fan, so we will try not to hold that against him. So let's go through our picks for the all-offensive team. Greg, run through who you had as your top five for the all-offensive team. For the all-offensive team, I, I really thought that it was clear-cut Luka as the number one. Uh, when you have the best offense in history and you're the engine that runs it, it's pretty hard to argue against that. Um, I also had, which may be surprising for some people, uh, given names like Harden and LeBron and even Dame, I had Giannis uh, as a number two just based on the fact that he is a cog in another excellent team. Uh, he's been you know, he's the reigning MVP. And when you look at his efficiency for the minutes that he plays, if you you know if you projected his his performance based on what he can do in a normal minutes allotment, it'd be pretty impressive. And my third guy is LeBron James. Uh, when you consider that he's pretty much adjusted his game again with the team that he has, and when he is off the court, their performance as an offense is scary bad. They actually give up more points than they score. But when when he and uh, Anthony Davis are on the court. They're one of the best teams in basketball. But then when you think yeah. about it, when you take off Anthony Davis and you have just LeBron, they're still good. Yeah. So that's yeah. really the differentiator. And when you can lead the league in assists at the age of 35 for the first time, uh, it's it's really impressive the ability to manage the court on the offensive end. And back to what you were saying about Giannis, he's averaging 31 minutes a game. So it's, it's very similar to the, the 2016 Steph Curry MVP season where he's average, he's leading the league in scoring, and you're like, he's sitting out the fourth quarter of like mm-hmm. a fourth of their games, and it makes you wonder, okay, well, if you looked at his per 48 or per, his per 36 or per 48 minute averages, what would they be? And they're like astronomically high. Yeah, absolutely. It's impressive. And then uh, just to finish up my top five, I had Harden, and I think we all know what Harden can do and how he plays. And I think I probably docked him a little bit for the fact that I think his numbers, while he is obviously a very good player, um, his performance numbers are very much part of the system as well in terms of how I would say they're a little bit inflated. And then you got Bradley Beal, who you could almost make a hardened argument in the fact that since their team doesn't play defense, they get lots of possessions and he gets (laughs) lots of shots. And he played zero defense this year. I mean, Bradley Beal's defensive rating was down there in the Trey Young territory. And this is from a guy that was traditionally a very good defender. Very true. Um, And it's it's crazy. It'll be really interesting to see what happens when John John Wall Wall comes back. back. So those are your top five. And just to give the audience a little bit of background how we did this, we each rated who we thought were the top five players in the NBA regardless of position on offense, period. 
So Greg gave you his top five. Uh, mine was based on production, which is, you know, points, assists, that kind of thing. Uh, impact, which I used some metrics like offensive player impact plus minus PIPM, and then offensive real plus minus, which is the John Holdren stat. So I kind of used those to help me kind of determine who I thought maybe had the best impact. And then also we looked at efficiency. So the kind of universal efficiency stat for offense is true shooting percentage because mm-hmm. it takes into account free throws and three-pointers. And the guys that we put on this list, and we were all pretty close on who we selected, me, Greg, and mm-hmm. Scott. Darn near unanimous who we put on our list. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went with Luca for the same reasons you just said. He's the best player on the best offense in league history with a, over a 115 offensive rating, which is absolutely insane. And they still had the top offensive rating in the league when he left the floor, which is just a testament to, again, system also. Mm-hmm. James Harden because, again, he's averaging 34.4 points per game. And even though people feel like Harden went through a shooting slump after starting on fire this year, his true shooting percentage is essentially the exact same as it's been for the last two years because even though his three-point percentage has dropped some, he's getting more free throw attempts, and so he's been able to keep his true shooting percentage really high. Then I had LeBron, who's leading the league in assists, and he's always an efficient player. Um, Giannis is number four for me just because, like you said, he has that ridiculous efficiency, the high production, and limited minutes, and the Bucks are one of the best offenses in the league. And then my number five was Trey Young, who between – being uh, number three, I think, type of third in the NBA with scoring. He has the same average as Giannis at 29.6 points. Um, he's averaging 9.3 assists. And then he is in the top five in both our offensive PIPM and offensive real plus minus. And just to give you a little background on the stats, uh, Luka's averaging 28.7 and 8.7 assists, 58 true shooting. Harden, 34 points, 7.4 assists, 61.6 true shooting. Trey Young is at 29.6, 9.3 assists, and 59.5 true shooting. And again, this is why a true shooting percentage is a better indicator mm-hmm. than field goal percentage. Because if you look at Trey Young's field goal percentage, it's like 43%. But when you understand the ratio of threes to twos he takes, as well as free throws, it makes him a lot more efficient. So Giannis is at 29.6, 5.8 assists, and 60.8 true shooting. And then LeBron is 25.7 points, leading the league with 10.6 assists and then a true shooting percentage of 58.2. Your eyes just glossed over when I went through all those stats. To summarize, basically all of them are over 58% for a true shooting percentage, and everybody besides LeBron is hovering around 29 or more points per game. So that's a quick summary. The other ones that we all had that were close to making it were Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal, and Carl Anthony Towns. They were universally on all of our lists. And honestly, there's probably seven or eight guys that deserve to be in this team. We only did five. And so Lillard just barely gets bumped off. Mm-hmm. And the difference between Lillard and Trey Young for me was simply, because that was the last two, were simply yeah. Trey Young's assist. I agree with everything that you said, David. I will say that the one guy I had that I know the the, uh, the other people did not in our voting panel uh, was Devin Booker. And that's interesting because I've never really been a big Devin Booker yeah, fan. I don't like him because he doesn't really play a lot of defense. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm always those guys that put on stats on, on teams that aren't Bad winning. Teams, yeah. And it's frustrating because a couple years ago, I thought the Suns might actually put it together. Uh, the thing with Devin Booker that's changed my mind uh, about him as an offensive player is now he's not always holding the ball because he has Rubio. Yeah. He's learned how he's to play healthy. off guard and he can play on guard. Mm-hmm. He moves without the ball very well. So as an offensive player, he's an excellent player that has become more efficient as he's matured. And I got to remember that these guys are young when they come yeah, in the league. That's true. And you're th- you know what, Devin Booker... He's one Damian Damian Lillard like playoff run away from being considered like 
a really high-level offensive player. Mm-hmm. Because me personally, I wasn't Team Dame until last year, watching what he did to OKC, mm. and then that playoff run, and I became a believer. So shifting from that, Greg, go ahead and talk about your Offensive Player of the Year. So again, um, just like I mentioned on the all-offense team, uh, Luka, Luka Doncic was my Offensive Player of the Year. And again, the main point was that this is one of the most efficient players when you consider how they're using him. Uh, for the best offense in history. And when you have an, a, a true shooting percentage over 58%, you're scoring almost 30 points a game with almost nine assists a game. Um, and I think David mentioned this earlier. His pen, his PIPM is 5.99, so he's almost at a six. Leaving, leading the league. So that's an astronomically high number, if you didn't know. So it's really hard to go against him. And as the season's gone on, not only has he been efficient, if not better, the players around him, as they find their niche, their niche, have become better, such as Porzingis. And the fact that he can make players around him better and players can sort of fit in any offense in which he plays gives him the nod over other players for me because with somebody like Harden, Chris Paul is a perfect example. Harden needs people that don't want the ball in their hands, where Doncic does need the ball in his hands, but he doesn't always have the ball in his hands. And he moves a lot more than Harden does without the ball. And I think that's a real big value for an offense in terms of what you can do to game plan and also to protect... Doncic when the playoffs come and people can just double team and yeah. sort of crowd you. So yeah. that to me was the big differentiator in terms of his playing style and his performance. I remember him and Trey Young are both 21 and they just had two of the top 10 sophomore seasons in NBA history. If you take out big men and only look at guards, it's probably two of the five sophomore years in NBA history. So uh, my choice was also Luka Doncic and on our panel, Luka received the most votes, votes, <laughs> the most votes for Offensive Player of the Year. Harden finished second, LeBron finished third, with Giannis fourth. So uh, it was pretty consistent. And I think the biggest thing is what you said. It's not just his scoring, but it's his production mm-hmm. and his mastery of running an offense at age 21. So That's amazing. So just to recap, our 2020 NBA All-Offensive team, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Trey Young, James Harden, Luka Doncic. Golly, I cannot say that. Our honorable mentions, Damian Lillard, Carl Anthony Towns, who might have made this team had he played more than like 35 games, mm-hmm. um, Bradley Bill, and Devin Booker. All right, so moving from offense over to defense. So when looking at the defensive player of the year and the de- all-defensive team, I started out by like going with who I thought were just good defenders in my head, and then I tried to go and look to see if some of the defensive metrics matched them. And I started with uh, defensive PIPM and defensive RPM. And as Greg, you and I were talking about this yeah. earlier, we learned very quickly that defensive metrics, especially for wings and guards, are not good indicators of how quality the defense is. Yeah, it's really hard to isolate an individual defender on the court compared to their peers. And so if you're playing with a lot of players that aren't necessarily great defenders, it's going to either skew in your favor mm-hmm. or it's going to actually hurt you. And for example, like if you look at the defensive PIPM ratings, or if you look at just the overall defensive ratings, the players with the top seven defensive ratings, individual defensive ratings, are all for the Milwaukee Bucks, which tells you what? Tells you they have a really good defense. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, it's skewed. So we were looking at this, and we were discussing earlier this, the case of Marcus Smart, who is somebody mm-hmm. we debated for this list, and how defensive metrics are not kind to him. And we were watching the Thinking Basketball podcast, uh, excuse me, watching the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, which if you haven't checked out, that's a great podcast and channel breaking down Marcus Smart's elite defense Mm -hmm. and while also acknowledging that metrics don't really account for all the things that he does. 
And so this is one where we kind of moved away from the stats and said, hey, the stats have to confirm it. They can't have negative impact metrics, but we really have to go more by what our eyeballs see. So with that said, Greg, give me your uh, – let's start – let's go backwards this time. Give me who you put as your defensive player of the year. So my defensive player of the year was Giannis. You know, with Giannis, I think when you think about a seven-foot-plus player who is athletic, who can move, has good vision, is able to help his teammates, but think about a seven-foot perimeter defender. He can play the perimeter. He can play under the post. And then he's got another seven-footer with him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost unfair. But, I mean, that said, he can match up with any player, point guard through center. So a one through five guy's got to be my guy. And Giannis is best defending wings and post players. But what's happened now is with Mike Budenhoser putting in a system of using drop coverages to play pick and rolls, and Brooke Lopez has become like an elite drop defender and one of the leading shot blockers in the NBA, which is crazy mm-hmm. because through most of his career, he was a below average defender. Mm-hmm. But they found a way to use him to drop play drop coverage. He's learned how to play with great verticality so he doesn't foul a lot. And the result is that Giannis has a lot more freedom to roam, play passing lanes, and funnel to Lopez, and it's made him an even more efficient defender. So um, I also had Giannis as Defensive Player of the Year, and Scott had Rudy Gobert. So we ended up with our Defensive Player of the Year voting with a tie between Gobert and Davis. Excuse me, Gobert and Giannis, Giannis with uh, Anthony Davis finishing third. And the nod went to Giannis because he received more first-place votes. But Gobert, who had a, I'm doing air quotes here, down year on defense for him, was still arguably the most impactful defender in the NBA when you look at all the metrics. But what you were saying, Greg, is I think one of the things that separates Giannis is his versatility. The fact that he can switch out and guard not only wings but guards and hold his own. And I think it was also bolstered by the back line. Yeah, and I mean, to give Gobert his due, I will say I think the biggest difference between Giannis and Gobert is, as as David, like you're saying, the versatility, I think, is what we both probably were leaning yeah. on. But with I could see where, where Scott was going on where – Gobert is a shot changer. So if yeah. you look at the statistics that involve the ability to change shots year after year, Gobert is a leader in that area. And just so you know, if you're a basketball fan, understand that rim protection is always the number one factor in defensive impact if you're trying to measure it. It's always rim protection. So this is going to sound crazy to say, but an elite rim protector is a more impactful defender than an elite guard. It, that's just true. Even though that's weird to say, that's just true as far as impact. doesn't mean that they're not both important. But this is why you don't see guards get Defensive Player of the Year very often. Length matters. And if they're going to be a good Defensive Player of the Year like Michael Jordan was, you're going to be 6'5 or taller, yeah, most likely. Yeah. You don't see a whole lot of uh, 6'2 Defensive Players of the Year. Just to give you an idea of what we're talking about, Giannis only averaged one block and one steal per game, which are actually two of the lowest totals of his career. But again, that's because the function of what he's doing is smothering, forcing kickouts, and funneling people into Brooke Lopez. Lopez is averaging 2.4 block shots this year, which, is, again, is near the top of the league. So in constructing our entire team, we ended up deciding to go with three bigs and then two wings slash guards because, again, bigs are the most impactful players. And truthfully, if you were doing an all-defense team, there are some people that would say, I would go with only people 6'8 or taller. Mm-hmm. What's the temptation? So, uh, Greg, who did you have for your wings? So yeah, go ahead. When we're talking about smalls and wings, and as David said, like one of the reasons players like Marcus Smart don't get that high level of evaluation is because you know they don't have the length, they don't have the impact. But usually, if you look at height and length, you need to be at least six seven for that to matter mm-hmm. in today's NBA. Yeah, yeah. Um, that said, when you're looking at wings and smalls, I really 
for me, the, the ones that were really impactful for me, I think I have to go with smart. I'm looking at it now. Yeah. I have to say, I think smart is definitely one of my two for like smalls and wings. And then I'd say probably Kawhi. Okay. And, I, and you had Jalen Brown high on your list. Go ahead and talk about why you originally had Jalen Brown so high. And I had Jalen Brown so high because, wait, I'm a Celtics fan. And two, I've seen a lot of improvement with Jalen Brown, and I, I watch a lot of the Celtics, and the thing that's really impressive with Brown is he is a cerebral player. Not as much as you'd think on defense versus his offensive improvement, yeah. but when he is focused, his lateral movement, his ability to change direction, his verticality, um, his length, he's just a great athlete with a good mind, and his ability to position himself has improved dramatically. But his base, which is he doesn't look as thick as you think, but he can guard people like he can guard people like Joel Embiid for a short while and at least be representable and not get just pushed down on the block. And that versatility with many of the Celtics players allows them to take switches that other teams just can't do. So my wings were Chris Dunn and Marcus Smart. With Dunn, who's been a great defender since he was uh, in college at Providence, I believe it was, and um, he had really good defensive metrics this year, but. Essentially, I watched what he did to Trey Young, who's one of the mm. best offensive players in the NBA. And again, that wasn't for me to be like, my goodness, this guy is such a good defender. I mean, he absolutely harasses Trey, makes Trey's life miserable. Dunn's got good length for a point guard at mm-hmm. six foot four, and he's one of those guys that relies more on like hustle and athleticism than like technique. So like someone like Marcus Smart is like a defensive technician. But Chris Dunn is almost like a more athletic Patrick Beverly, where he's competitive, mm-hmm. he's gritty, he, he does it that way. Um, and then Scott also had for, for his list, he had Ben Simmons and Chris Dunn as two of his uh, perimeter defenders. And all of us had Kawhi Leonard on our list in varying different spots. So I know we just said a lot. Our final five for our defense, we went with three bigs and two wings slash uh, guards. So if that confused you, here's our final lineup. It was Giannis, Gobert, and Davis as our bigs. And then Marcus Smart and Kawhi Leonard as our wings. And Kawhi isn't where he was maybe in 2017 as a defender. As he's gotten heavier, he's lost a little bit of his lateral movement. But he still has probably the best hands in the NBA, some of the best hands Mm -hmm. in the NBA history. And uh, Marcus Smart, being as versatile as he is, made every one of our list. And the honorable mentions for this list were, again, uh, Patrick Beverly, Chris Dunn, and Brooke Lopez, who mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, into his 30s has become a really good defender and Coach Budenhoser's system up in Milwaukee. And doing this defensive list is always weird because guys end up with reputations of being good defenders even when they're not, or they end up with being reputations for being good defenders long after they still are. Like Rajon Rondo. Rondo. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then it goes the opposite way too, where LeBron got a reputation for being a really good defender, and then from like 2016 to 2019, he wasn't. And then this year, he was actually really good again. But people don't realize he's really good again. Very true. So it, it's kind of like the gold gloves in baseball. It's so much more on rep than it is actual effectiveness. But LeBron's metrics measure out to about the same as Kawhi's this year. He was mm-hmm. arguably as good of a defensive player as Kawhi. Arguably. But again, the biggest thing with LeBron, as we've said, is he doesn't always play hard. Yeah, and I think I think the thing that all of us were probably thinking at the time, because I think all of us would acknowledge LeBron was a much better defender this year, was probably the aspect of he does take time out yeah he goes um, in chill mode and he doesn't have to take the best player a lot of the time because mm-hmm. they have enough good defenders around him now that they can cover the perimeter defenders and if it's a post player it's going to be anthony davis that's covering for him and he's got three rim protectors and three rim protectors and anthony davis javel mcgee and dwight howard so he's never on the court without a big yeah to back him up so 
All right, so moving from that to Coach of the Year, is we essentially had the same coaches for one and two, somewhat in different order. So Nick Nurse is our winner. He was on every ballot. Mike Budenholzer finished second, and then Billy Donovan finished third. And Greg and I both had Nick Nurse, whereas Scott had Coach Bud. Greg, will you talk a little bit about why you voted Nick Nurse as your top coach? And I am in agreement with you probably why you did so, but I want to see if we're on the same page. So, yeah, and so when I picked my three, all you have to know is, obviously, I'm a Celtics fan, I'm a big Brad Stevens fan, and I picked Nick Nurse over Brad Nick Stevens. Stevens. Okay. So that's all you need to know, because I think Stevens has been robbed a few years by some great coaching jobs, and Nick Nurse had a fantastic coaching job this year. The big thing that Nick did this year is that, one, he lost his best player. Mm-hmm. Um, he was able to take advantage of the development of players that he's currently had, such as Pascal. So, you know, Nick Nurse was able to find another star. He also was able to find many different lineups while his players were basically injured every other week. And it wasn't just like side players. It was, you know, it was Pascal and it was Kyle Lowry and it was, so, I mean, I've never seen a team honestly with that much movement being second. And this is a much better Eastern conference than it's been in the past. So to be second in this conference, having lost your best defender and best player, I don't know how you don't give it to him. Yeah. And I'm kind of with you. And I think what we're seeing is that as much credit as Kawhi is given for their success in the finals last year, I think people are realizing that Nick Nurse had a lot to do with that. Going mm-hmm. back and watching him playing a boxing one and it working. I mean, who does? That's like a, that's like literally defense mm-hmm. and it working. And you're seeing how their system works, whether they have uh, Fred Van Fleet out there or Norman Powell mm-hmm. out there, that they are an effective defensive team. And the players buy in. And, and I think that's really in. important. All right. So um, with Coach Bud. I, <laughs> It's hard not to give it in a guy who was on pace to maybe win 70 games this year. Mm-hmm. But you have a two-time MVP. You have the best roster in the NBA. Most but likely. From, from from one through ten. It's the deepest yes. bench in the NBA. I mean, you have guys like George Hill and uh, Robin Lopez and Kyle Korver buried on your bench. I mean, it's probably the deepest team in the NBA. And you have the reigning MVP, or maybe even the defense player of the year for this year, so, yes, you deserve credit because you built a great defensive system and you built your team around Giannis to meet his needs. But at the same time, there's a lot of coaches that could take that team and win 50 games. And it's also true that, you know, Coach, Coach Bud probably doesn't get as much credit as he deserves. deserves. When you think about what happened with his Hawks and, you know, when you look at the talent they had and when he left, what, what happened. happened. So I think, you know, it's hard because he probably deserves this. And I wouldn't be surprised if he wins the official award. Yeah. But... It's just, I mean, Nick Nurse might have one of the top ten coaching, you know, jobs in the last thirty years. So, yeah. and and then Billy Donovan was on you and Scott's roster, and I know you were talking earlier about uh, just the fact that they've overachieved so much. They're, I think, right now in fifth place in the West, and they were a team that wasn't supposed to make the playoffs. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's interesting is they didn't take the approach that I think most coaches would take. He took a non-traditional approach. They have three guards that are better than you know their, their top five players. Three of them are guards. They're not very tall. They're undersized, with the exception of Shea Gilgis Alexander. And you know they said, you know what, we're going to play them all yeah. as much as we can, yeah. um, but we're going to have at least two of them on the court at all times. Yeah. But when they run with their three, which they usually do at closing time, that's like their equivalent of their smalls lineup. Yeah, that's their de- that's their death lineup. And their death lineup has been very good, though it does not play as many minutes as people perceive it to. Yeah. Um, and one of the stats that's going to be really interesting is see how Donovan manages that during the postseason because um, there's usually reasons where the stats lie in terms of the reason the coach may not be playing that lineup so much is it's a change-up type of lineup, and if they know it's coming, 
they may be able to stop it. So it's gonna be very interesting to see how that goes because that would be my only, I guess, blemish on Donovan is if that was so effective, should have maybe gone with it more. Yeah. But to have people buy in, especially whenever I was talking about this, as this is just a team that's sort of in flux because of all the draft picks, and instead the coaching job and the buy-in from the players to perform, and not just perform, but perform really well in a competitive Western Conference. Because I mean, people are talking about them as borderline yeah. eight. And, you know, when I heard initially that they're going to get Danilo Gallinari, Danilo Gallinari to play with Chris Paul, and you have Dennis Schroeder as your backup, and then Shea Gillespie, Say Gilgis Alexander. Man, they have some funky names at the two. <laughs> I remember in the offseason being like, that doesn't sound like a 9 or 10 seed to me. And mm-hmm. if Chris Paul is motivated, which he clearly was this year, he looked like New Orleans Chris Paul. So, yeah, and the one, la- the one last coach I'll throw in addition to that was Nate McMillan, who mm-hmm. was third on my list because he took a overachieving Indiana team last year, lost their all-NBA guard in Victor Oladipo, Figured out how to play Miles Turner and Sabonis together, which we've been True. talking about. They finally mm-hmm. decided to let Turner shoot his threes and let uh, Sabonis own the paint. And they've got Malcolm Brogdon to kind of fill in for some of what Oladipo gave you as far as defense and playmaking. Yeah. And they're, you know, at the top half of the Eastern Conference when they really have no business being there from a talent perspective. So I just wanted to mention him there. But obviously our winner, and I think Greg is right, it should clearly be this person is Nick Nurse. All right, so for now let's move on to most improved player. And can I go ahead and give a caveat? And I want to see if you agree with this, Greg. Mm-hmm. Never give most improved player to a second-year NBA player. They're supposed to improve. This is why I would not include Trey Young. Now, you may disagree with that. Go ahead and tell me. Well, obviously, I went with Shea as one of my players. So I do think that there's an exception to the rule. But I think, generally speaking, your second year is your yeah. biggest improvement year. year. So yes. it's really your who am I year yeah. in terms of my what's your floor. And that's this, how you should maybe yeah. look at it. And this is why – that's a good way of putting what's your floor. So this is why I wouldn't consider Trey or Luca for the award. Because, again, from rookie to second year, you should improve. So third year and beyond, fair game. But mm-hmm. I, that just bothers me when people will make these lists and list a bunch of second-year players. Anyways, I'm on my soapbox. All right, so <laughs> um, the winner for this award for us – let me backtrack. In third place for this award was Bam Adebayo from the Miami Heat. Jason Tatum from the Boston Celtics finished second. And the winner for this award by narrow margin was Brandon Ingram. So, Greg, being the, the Tatum expert, tell me what you saw that you thought was worthy of him winning most improved. So, I want to first talk about what he didn't do well in his second year. So, when he when Jason Tatum first joined the Celtics as a rookie, I just want to point out, Danny Ainge said he was the best player in the draft, even though they got him with the third pick. And they did not want Markel Fultz. They <laughs> wanted him, which is why they traded down. So... Right now, it looks pretty, pretty sound. Good, yeah. But but one of the things that was really interesting is they put him in a position to be successful, and they, they did a good job of minimizing the things he would do. They made him basically a 3 and D with a little bit of pop and a little bit of transition, but he was basically taking top-of-the-key threes, corner threes. But he wasn't you know he wasn't driving too much. He wasn't doing a lot of layups. His, his ability to finish in the paint was actually pretty poor for his size. Very good overall player and has very good footwork, and his handles are probably were overrated his first couple years. He'd lose a lot of balls. He dribbled a little high um, but in the last in last year you saw those things because he was asked to do more and now his his limitations as of at that time started to come out 
But now in this last year, probably maybe like, I don't know, a month before everything ended. Yeah, it's basically from the end of January, beginning of February to the end of the season. It, he it, was 29 points a game. It just started to click. Yeah, and like a superstar. And at the beginning of the year, you saw something that was interesting. He was trying to go to the rim and find out how to create contact and finish. Because one of the stats was very scary for a Celtics fan was that players that don't get free throws mm-hmm. do not become all-stars. Yep, that is true. And Tatum was not getting free throws. And now he's getting free throws. And now he's finishing at the rim. He's learned to basically control his dribble. He doesn't settle for mid-range. He takes a lot of long. He was taking a lot of long twos. He now takes threes. He shoots at a very high percentage. He has a little sidestep three, which yeah. I, very few people have in the league, and it works for him. So when you look at that player, I think Jason Tatum has learned how to put all these different tools that he had at Duke together, refine his handle. And really understands the the nature of the current NBA, which is, hey, you're going to either shoot a three or go to the rim, and you're only taking those mid-range when it's essential in a one-on-one end-of-game or playoff situation. I still subscribe to your theory that Kobe ruined him on purpose to get back to the Celtics <laughs> True. by having him take long, contested two-pointers last year. <laughs> turnaround <laughs> two-pointers. And turnarounds that are really low percentage shots. And the other thing you didn't mention is that Tatum is actually a very underrated defender. True. Um, he is... Very switchable. He's long. Now he's stronger. He's gotten stronger. So I think that's another thing is that he is a player that plays both ends of the floor. Um, I think Brandon Ingram as our winner, it was just clear that with the expanded role, Mm -hmm. and he showed a lot of, he actually showed a lot of improvement last year in LA, but playing in LeBron's shadow, your usage is always going to be low if you're not LeBron. But with the increased usage, you know, he bumped up to 25 points a game and he started making threes, which is something that Mm -hmm. he did not do consistently his first few years of his career. And he looked for the first time like a true number one offensive option. He looked the player everybody thought he was going to be coming out of Duke. And he's on a team that was competing for the playoffs by the end of the year. And so if you ask me who I picked with my team around, I would pick Tatum over Ingram. But as far as who I thought showed the most growth this year, it's Ingram over the course of the entire year with Tatum making it very interesting based on what he did the last mm. month and a half of the season. And had we finished the season – with the last 20 games, I think Tatum could have, Tatum could have caught him. And and I want to say this in in for Brandon Ingram, I think I actually had given up on him. <laughs> yeah. So you thought, I, you thought that's what he is. I thought he was what he was. Yeah. He's a guy that takes jump shots that he probably can't take anything else because he can't create for himself. And I thought he was going to be a limitation on D because he didn't seem to pay, put the time in to get stronger and all those things. Have I mean they're not there's still some of his weaknesses yeah. but he has definitely gotten better at those and there actually appears to be continued opportunity for growth for Ingram and with a player like Zion Williamson on his team and a, a passer like Lonzo Ball and with the length on that team it's basically what the Lakers had been hoping for yeah. but they didn't wait long enough yeah yeah and um, just to add Bam Adebayo and we have him on most improved. I'm not sure that Bam's game improved so much mm-hmm. as it is that his production improved because he got the expanded role. They cleared out Hassan Whiteside. Bam got the majority of the minutes at the five, and his production just increased. And he was always good at these things. He's a very good passer. He's a very good defender. He has an underrated score. He has a little bit of a mid-range game. He can post up some. And so I think the improvement wasn't so much that he got better as it was that his role expanded and people were able to see what he did. Mm. And then also on the list for me was um, DeMontis Sabonis, who obviously had a huge statistical jump. um, And he's become one of the best rebounders in the NBA. He can score in the low post. He's a handful. And you had Shea Gilgis-Alexander. 
I did. And I, I just think that he's, again, versatility is something really important. I was just mentioning earlier about the fact that if you're somebody who's six foot six, six foot seven, and he has good length, um, and he has old guy game. You know, he's the player that some people would argue he didn't really improve that much. He just was put in a position where he's now a leader. Yeah. My argument is that I think it's the little things that he improved on. So the numbers wouldn't say he improved dramatically, but he was a good player on a team with a lot of other good players that were carrying the weight of being a veteran. And now he's playing as a second-year player as a veteran. And he's one of the biggest components for that team. I believe he's leading the Thunder in scoring. I know he's averaging mm-hmm. 19 points a game, so somebody can fact-check me on that. Billy, get on that, actually. Mm-hmm. Let me know if he's leading the scorer for the Thunder. Um, but, yeah, Gildas Alexander is one that I know the Clippers did not want to part with mm-hmm. because they were very high on him. I know Doc Rivers were super high on him, but it's Paul George getting a return. <laughs> and, again, if Shake Gildas Alexander hits a ceiling – he may still not be Paul George. He mm-hmm. could be, but there's no guarantee. And they were in win-now mode. True. All right, so moving on to our last area, and that is the MVP award. What's that, Billy? Yeah, okay. Gilgis Alexander is the leading scorer for OKC at 19.3 points per game. Billy, you get a raise. What's, uh, what's 110% of zero? All right, so <laughs> back to this award, the MVP award. We had unanimous voting across the top two positions. Third finishing on our ballots was Luka Doncic. At number two on all of our ballots was LeBron James. And at number one, this is no shock, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, Greg, what did you say out of Giannis' game this year? The thing about Giannis' game is that a seven-footer with a respectable three-point shot, I wouldn't say it's a it's good, good. <laughs> three-point shot yet, but it's enough that if he's hit, he gets hot, and if he hits four or five in a row, if you give him space, he will hit it. If you rush him, he probably isn't. Yeah. But the thing is, if you are within four feet of him, he's just going to go by you. So the challenge is now you have this player that has range, who can dribble, who can pass and kick to the open player. Uh, and his efficiency numbers are off the chart. So he's a complete player that is continuing to improve his shot. And it's just really hard to go against the reigning MVP when he gets better and his team was the best team in the NBA at the time that there was a stoppage of play. And we talked about this earlier. This is one of those classic cases where a guy wins his first MVP and then he's better the next year, so you really have to give it to him. So we're talking about the Steph Curry, the, his, his first MVP. You know, He had a good season, and then he blows it away with his, what he does the next year. And the same thing with Steve Nash. And so with this year, Giannis is unquestionably the MVP. He's arguably the defensive player of the year. He's one of the three or four best offensive players of the year based on efficiency, scoring. Mm-hmm. Any measure you use, he's averaging either five or six assists a game, yeah. which is very good for a power forward. I mean, mm-hmm. he's averaging in Jokic territory at this point. And leads the league in offensive RPM, real plus minus, at 7.07. And he leads by a good margin over the second-place person, which I believe is Trey Young. You have this guy who's one of the top five most impactful offensive players, one of the top three most impactful defensive players, it's just very simple to say that guy's the best player this year. If you're the most complete player yeah. with the best upside, the most talent, it's hard to go against you. And, you know, for the last two or three years, everybody's been using the term two-way player. And I think that's kind of finally, thankfully, started to started to work its way out of our lingo. We're just talking about now the best player. Mm-hmm. Because to now, in, in today's NBA, if you don't play both into the court, you're not considered a top-five player anymore. And that's a good change. Stop saying two way because NBA is always basketball's always been two way. And even and even all stars now, it's like it's hard to make the argument for some of the players that we would have made in the past because there's there's now more effort to measure defensive performance, not just say hey he's good. Yeah. So like the only way to be 
an all-star is to either be so good on offense that people are unable to ignore your production like a Trey Young mm-hmm. or to be a balanced player. Because if you look at the guys that are terrible defenders, the only really terrible defender that made the all-star game this year was Trey Young. True. And Devin Booker made it as a as an alternate. But, I mean, Trey Young is really the only just god-awful defender that was an all-star this year. But, again, he's probably one of the top four offensive players, four mm-hmm. to six offensive players in the NBA also. So, Greg, any final thoughts on these league awards? You know, it's funny because I would think most most of these shows we talk a lot about LeBron. And yeah. I feel like we really didn't talk about LeBron. And what's interesting is I think that if LeBron had had the full season, you could start seeing he the was, signs. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he was hunting for the MVP yeah. this year. Yeah. And he was making his case, and his case was very strong. Um, but he just didn't have the extra couple months to make his case. And it's funny you mention that because he had that insane week, you know, where they beat the Bucks and the uh, Clippers, and then Giannis got hurt. Mm-hmm. So you have to think, if Giannis misses a couple weeks, mm-hmm. and LeBron's Lakers start to catch him for the best record in the NBA, and the way he was playing, it would have gotten very interesting. And it's funny to talk about how LeBron only has four MVPs, and we know that he probably should have seven. I mean... He probably mm-hmm. should have the Derrick Rose MVP. He could argue he could have gotten the first Curry MVP. But, I mean, it's the same with Jordan. Jordan probably should have six or seven also. Mm-hmm. But people get LeBron fatigue. And it's yes. like, oh, LeBron's averaging 25, 8, and 7. Oh, okay, that's just a typical <laughs> year for him. But, like, if somebody that was a just all-star level player ascended to that level, we'd be like, oh, my gosh, look at his – Look at his rise to superstardom. If Jason Tatum does that next yeah. year, he will be a top three candidate that for is, sure. That's a good example. That's a good so. example. So, yeah, that, you make a good point there. So, that's it for our list of all NBA teams. Please let us know what you think on Twitter, at Tyler on Sports, or email us at TyleRunSports at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. This is Dave Bethay and Greg Rich for the Tyler Run Podcast. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. Go Celtics. <laughs>